Here we go on a Monday night, and the music always gets me fired up. It's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Another great show on tap for you tonight. But first and foremost, Ira, you returned here to South Florida for a little while, but now you're back on Long Island. And I don't want to, you know, give away too much of your personal life, but I don't know what kind of parties and stuff you've been going to. But this is like the the uh, you know the most lavish thing in the Hamptons. You're living the good life. Well, it's good. I mean, I, I ran into, uh, not to drop names, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. would be, I guess, I don't see any sports stars, but uh, show me the money, Cuba Gooding Jr. was out there. So that was sort of technically the only sports person I ran into, but it was fun to be in the Hamptons. And I'm going to be in New York tonight. Uh, Yankees-Mets game is going to start in a few minutes. Uh, I'll be at the game tomorrow night at Yankee Stadium. I was the two games at City Field. I can't wait for the atmosphere at Yankee Stadium. And, and now these games take on added importance because the Mets are battling for their lives to stay ahead of the hot Braves. And the Yankees are trying to avert a complete and utter, you know, like epic disaster of, of a, in terms of blowing a, a million game lead. It just seems like they, they have played over the last 18 games, a team that people thought was going to win like 130 games. Uh, is now had the, the worst record in baseball over the last 18 games. Yeah, and they'll get, uh, they've just reported they'll get John Carlos Stanton back on Thursday, but that's not going to help them out for this Mets series, and they're going to face off against Scherzer tonight, DeGrom tomorrow. It's an uphill battle uh, here against the Mets. Don't forget, you can follow Ira anywhere, at Ira on Sports, all across social media. And Ira, we've got an amazing guest tonight, and and I'll, you know I'll, I'll tell the truth, we pre-recorded this, but you know sometimes we go into these bigger celebrity events or bigger celebrity interviews and you don't know what you're going to get from them we had kyle petty on and kyle petty this was one of the most fun interviews that you've ever done he seemed genuinely just like an amazing guy and i think everyone's going to love this interview I think it's a great – It was. I love the interview with him. It's also – we have an app on video, too, uh, on Instagram, because we did it on Zoom, too. So we did a, a recording with Zoom and with audio. Uh, but, look, Kyle Petty has lived a life that very people have in terms of he went into racing, and his dad was the greatest racer of all time. So he had to follow that. So only, like, I would say Michael Jordan's kids, Tiger kids are going to have to deal with that. It's very hard to follow the king, the legend. But he had a great racing career and talked about being a career as an owner and a racer. His son, uh, unfortunately, died racing. Uh, it was just, and he's been given so much to charity. Uh, just a great, great guy. And you see him, he's one of the best commentators on TV. So I'm just so thankful that he came on our show. Uh, and he is so enthusiastic, and I can't wait for everybody to hear this interview. The interview is tremendous. 7.35, we'll catch up with Kyle Petty here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, when I was a kid, one of the big uh, series we used to watch is Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And for the past week and a half, it's been, where in the world is Tom Brady? Not normal like him to just completely disappear. Nobody knows where he is. There's unsubstantiated claims came out this afternoon that he was in the Bahamas at a private resort. That hasn't been verified by Tom Brady. People were saying he was going on Dancing with the Stars or Masked Singer. I don't think that happened either. What's going on here? Well, I, I don't know, but it was – I just couldn't believe that Tom Brady could go somewhere for 10 days and no one spot him because people were interested. In, and with the cell phones, the cameras, I mean, there are people who are, who are TikTok stars that people get 2 million views on with everybody in the world that has five cameras and five cell phones or whatever – 
I can't believe no one knew where he went. I mean, thank God if it's only going to the Bahamas, that's great. I, you know, people thought there was concern that there was a family illness or something. But uh, look, if there's any person in the world that doesn't need training camp, it's Tom Brady. And to take 10 days off in the middle of August in Tampa, probably a smart move. And the team knows that he's the leader. I think if you look, you win uh, seven Super Bowl championships, you're the all goat. I think you're allowed 10 days off in August during training camp. No, the, I think the only weird thing was it was like Todd Bowles, you know, the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Kind of was like, I have no idea where he is. <laughs> this is an excused absence, but I don't know where he is or when he's getting back. I think that was what was the most concerning, especially for Tom Brady, who might be the most regimented athlete ever, maybe since Michael Jordan, if you're going to throw someone else in there. For it to happen with him, like if this was Aaron Rodgers, you'd be like, oh, of course, it's Aaron Rodgers. This is not very Tom Brady-ish, Ira. That's what I think struck me as the weirdest. Well, maybe it was something that he agreed to do before, and then he decided to come back, and then this was still planned. And again, as I said, I, I feel like it, it is crazy, but it's the season goes so long. And look, LeBron, for the last decade, has been taking sometimes weeks off in the middle of the season. So, and, and LeBron and uh, Tom Brady's uh, much older than LeBron. So, uh, but I think that it's again, it's spring tra- it's a it's a training camp. It's a hundred thousand degrees in Tampa. It's just going to keep him fresher. You don't want him. I mean, Stafford, you don't want your forty-year-old quarterbacks throwing lots of balls. And if you're watching any of these preseason games, do you see any starters? I mean, Patrick Cajones played. I mean, he had 18 throws one game, 20 the next. He's like the only starter that's playing in any of these games of all 32 teams. So it's like they really don't need to be out there. So we're going to talk about UFC later. Great, great title fight uh, on Saturday night. We'll catch you up on that. But Dana White's been in the news for some other stuff, Ira. And we have had the liberty of having on Iron Sports some people that kind of debunked this. Well, Dana White made a comment this week, and this became the number one story. Anything with Tom Brady's number one story, but he came out and said that Tom Brady was going to sign with the Raiders, and he was close, and he knew it. But that, but and this is breaking news to right now. But it was for John Gruden, who was the general manager and coach at the time, or acting general manager, president, team president, and coach at the time, uh, said no. And but otherwise, he was there, and they said Gronkowski and Brady were looking for houses in the in La, in Las Vegas. Well. This story is ridiculous because, first of all, it's been reported. It's like saying A-Rod was traded to the Red Sox, which he was, and it was reversed. It's like everyone knew that the Raiders had some – there was some interest there as one of the team's names. Wickersham wrote in his book that the, uh, about the Raiders, about that, the market for the greatest quarterback. I'm reading from the book. Uh, once it's rumored to be up to uh, – oh, here it is. It, goes, it says the Raiders now in Las Vegas plan to put in a call, but even though Brady had spoken to Mark Davis ringside at a fight in January, and even though UFC President Dana White, a Patriots fan, told the press that if that dude isn't playing for Boston, he's playing here, neither Brady nor the team seriously considered one another because Gruden did say no. Like, that was the point. Like, you're, he's not going to play with the Raiders if John Gruden says no to it, and that's what everybody knew that. That's why they stayed with Carr. And also, he wanted to go to San Francisco, one of the teams he was looking at. And Kyle Shanahan said no one can. That was the story. Is that They stuck with Jimmy G. This is like deflecting from the fact that the 49ers stuck with Jimmy G and didn't bring in Brady. Not the Derek Carr and staying with the Raiders. Totally non-story at all. The other teams were Chargers and 49ers. But in, from the books, with the Seth Wickersham book, on Better to be Feared, Lars Anderson, Season the Sun, they both said Tampa Bay, Jason Light, their general manager, Bruce Arians, the, the head coach went all in for Tom. Like when the moment they called, they called and said, we want to do this deal. We want to do this deal. We want you to come here. And they had Godwin. They had Evans. They had all the wide receivers. And it clearly worked out because they won the Super Bowl. I just, I've never seen more of a non-story. He went to the team that was best made
made ready for Super Bowl in the best situation. He wins the Super Bowl, and people now are saying, "Oh, he could have been a Raider." Like, it's, like, it's ridiculous. It's even it's not it's not a story at all, and it was reported two years ago anyway. Weird stuff all around. Not buying it. Yeah, Tampa did seem like the perfect landing spot. That's why he, uh, you know, came to Florida, and like you said, he won, won a Super Bowl his, his first season. So I think he knows what he's doing. This is Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Kyle Petty uh, joins us at seven thirty five. Deshaun Watson, we've been waiting, it seems like all year, for what the decision is going to be on Deshaun Watson. We finally know, 11-game suspension, $5 million fine. I think first take, spent two hours to talk about this. I mean, it, it was, I, we'll talk, I'll spend like two, three minutes here. Deshaun Watson was, he got paid last year to play, signs the, the richest contract in all sports, in all football, $250 million guaranteed to go to Cleveland um, they settled. He was looking for. They was initially suspended uh, six games, which people said was too little. Uh, people thought it was the NFL was looking for uh, twelve games, uh, a whole full season, seventeen game suspension. Um, I think people thought it was going to be around eight, nine, ten games around that level where it was going to come. And the thing is that they the eleventh game is against Tampa Bay on national television. They don't want that. So he, they agreed. They settled on an 11-game suspension. Everybody knew there was going to be a $5 million fine. Uh, I, I think this really hurts Cleveland. I, I, I get to the point where I think Cleveland should have expected this, and I would have never traded Baker Mayfield. They should have paid Baker Mayfield, kept him there. What are they going to do not make his money, make it this year? I thought it was weird that they traded him, and now they're, they're stuck with Jacoby Brissett as their quarterback, and it's almost a throwaway season. So I don't, I don't, I don't think I – just thought that Cleveland should – this is what I expect. I mean, I think this is better than I expected. I thought it was going to be the whole year. So, the, But still, he's going to play five games, and they're probably not going to make the playoffs now. And that's good. it's a throwaway season. But if they had Baker Mayfield on a team that was primed to go deep in the playoffs, they had a better shot. But they traded Baker. They didn't want him on the team. I think it was a big mistake from the Browns. It, and it might be a throwaway season, but I'm not certain that it's going to be. I mean, some of the schedule is really soft. I know we know what Jacoby Brissett is. But they still play really good defense, and they've got games like Carolina, the Jets, the Falcons. They might be able to go into this, you know, in uh, week, uh, I guess it'd be week 12 that he would come back, or week 13, I'm sorry, he'd come back. They could be 5-8, and eight, you know, and maybe go on a run. It, it, it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, I'm not completely counting them out. Um, they do have a tough division to play through, too. So, you know, like I said, it's not going to be easy. Someone's going to win 11 games that division. But it won't shock me if they slide in uh, as a wild card. So we've been beginning to see, uh, especially the younger quarterbacks, start to play a little bit more here in the preseason. How are the, the quarterback battles shaping up? Just real fast, Mayfield has won over uh, uh, over Sam Darnell in uh, Carolina. Matt Corral, who was the rookie uh, from Mississippi, was injured, really not in the mix, but now he's out for the whole season. The Steelers... I'll tell you what, Kenny Pickett looking good. Looks he real good. He came in in the first half, at the second part of the first half, led the Steelers on drives for a touchdown, played well. Trubisky started the game, and Mason Rudolph was in the second half. They're all playing fairly well. I thought Trubisky didn't play as well as the other two in this game, but uh, Pickett might have a shot to start. And then Seattle, I, I don't even hate saying this is a battle. Drew Locke came back, Geno Smith. I think Seattle was just it's a weird – they're definitely playing to get C.J. Stroud or for a quarterback next year. They didn't draft one this year. To have Geno Smith as your starter is crazy. 
Um, and the rookies this year, I mean, besides Pickett, you just don't see um, a Malik Willis for Tennessee. Looked good the first game, but Tannehill's going to be the quarterback. Willis might come in for certain plays. Atlanta, Marcus Mariota is going to be their quarterback. Desmond Ritter for Cincinnati, drafted in third round. Uh, is going to see some action, but unless Mariota gets hurt, which he possibly have, Ritter because the quarterback in Washington. Stan Howe from North Carolina has looked very good in the preseason um, on some plays. Like I li- and I liked him in college at North Carolina. When so is a starter. They're paying him to be the starter. And Tyler Henneke is their backup. Um, and then the one thing I was about to say about quarterbacks, I, I like what Colin Coward. I was listening to him, and I'm like, I, I agree with this. I thought this was a good point, that there were five quarterbacks drafted in the top of the picks last year. Trevor Lawrence it could have was drafted Jacksonville, bad situation, but Trevor Lawrence would, is going to be successful anywhere he goes. He doesn't need a team to be successful. But the other four, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and Zach Wilson, they all were similar type quarterbacks in terms of Fields and Wilson might be better than Jones and Lance, but Jones and Lance fell to or not fell or were chosen by the uh, uh, the Patriots and the 49ers, two really well-run teams. They're going to probably be more successful in that environment, whereas Fields at Chicago and Wilson with the Jets, the both teams are masses, and they're, they might not have this good NFL career just because they fell to these poor teams. Those are things. So I like the fact that was a great analysis that from last year's uh, draft, it looks like Trevor Lawrence is the, is the big star. No, and, and I totally agree with that. It, it really, really matters where a quarterback lands. If you look at a team like Chicago, they're bottom five on the offensive line. They might be the worst team in the league as far as receivers go. What does Justin Fields have? I mean, he's, he's on his back half the time. He's really set behind the eight ball, whereas he was with, you know, if he was in Mac Jones' shoes, they might have had two more wins last year than they did because I do think that Fields is a more talented quarterback than Mac Jones. He just happens to be playing for the best coach ever. So th- this is a huge factor, Ira, and I, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up. And we've talked about rookie quarterbacks a lot on this show because of Tua Tagovailoa uh, here in Miami and, you know, how, how, what his first steps were. So I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to reference this, and we'll, we'll, look at, you know, we'll look back on this in the future. Special teams, very important, Ira. And they don't get enough credit. Tell us about Matt Ariza on Buffalo. I'm just going to say, I was at lunch today. I was going to talk about punters. Okay? <laughs> I, was, I was just not going to talk about it. But I, someone said, did you see that 82-yard punt? I'm like, I must have missed that. So I turned it on, and he punted the ball 82 yards in the air. Uh, he was the number one uh, kicker in punter in college for San Diego State. Uh, his name is Punt God because he's such a great kicker, and a punter. But he went to, in and out, it went to uh, Buffalo, and Mac Heck was the – punter he, he supplanted him won that job and you're like buffalo was so close to the super bowl last year and if someone can punt 75 80 yards if that's like five times a game you're punting like this isn't like 60 70 yards a game that's a difference with so many of these nfl games being decided by a point or two a point or three when you think about these teams if they have a better kicker and a better punter i mean you could win these games this is different between going not at 10 and 7 and like you know 6 and 11 i mean it is so important and when a team like the bills we talk about josh allen and all their superstars and digs and and their defense and everything but when they get this have a punter when you're pinned in your with your back to the end zone and you can punt the ball that it goes to the other side of the field that's crucial and that might be the reason why the bills win the super bowl this year so i was just a, was really impressed that you'd like to see buffalo put that emphasis on that and some of these teams that put that emphasis in special teams do they tend to win all the time like the patriots for instance if the Bills win the Super Bowl, Ira, you have to get a Matt Areza jersey and say it was, it was all on his back. <laughs> 716, Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Kyle Petty joins us in 20 minutes right here on Ira on Sports. Let's switch over to the NCAA. 
Getting excited here for this, but first, let's talk a little bit about Kentucky and how this is going to shape up because we might be see, seeing some teams kind of in limbo here. Well, I, this, is, this leads into the Big Ten. The Big Ten just signed a seven-year, $1 billion a year deal. So it's $7 billion. Each team in the Big Ten is going to get roughly, I know there's 16 teams, but the way it works out in a couple of years, it'll be around $100 million per year. It's going to start. The games will be on Fox to begin with at 12, CBS at 3.30, and NBC at night, alternating with some Notre Dame games. Um, there is no ESPN at all. So if you're a Big Ten fan, you don't watch Big Ten games, you don't need ESPN anymore, and there's no game day, nothing. Now, ESPN is showing the SEC. ESPN shows the ACC exclusively. But the big thing picture is CBS switches. So 3.30 is usually always that SEC game at 3.30. No, it's going to be now the Big Ten game on CBS. And then at night now, NBC is going to have a Big Ten game. Big win for Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten. Uh, they, he gets UCLA and USC in. People were saying, well, maybe UCLA will back out. If they stay in the Pac-10, they would get $30 million a year. The Big Ten gets $100 million. You hear some things from the California border region saying, well, UCLA didn't really have permission to do it. They need to get our approval. But I think it's just a way for them trying to push Cal Berkeley into the Big Ten. Everybody wants to be in the Big Ten. No one's leaving. It's the party that everyone's going to. The Big Ten and the SEC are the party that everyone goes to. They don't leave the party. That's what it is. But I bring that up because in Kentucky, it's under the radar. And But it was, John Calipari made a statement that he wanted a practice facility for his basketball team because they're great, and Kentucky is a basketball school. And Mark Stoops, the football coach, said, whoa, 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 you've won one championship tournament here, and I've been won four bowl games, and Kentucky is just as much a football school as a basketball school. And Calipari got all upset, and then the president came down, and the AD came, the, really the AD and the president came and said, no, we are both schools and whatever. And they just they said if Calipari doesn't want to be here, he can leave. And people said that, oh, well, the reason the announcer was talking about this, and he said, the reason they said that was because John Calipari doesn't win like Nick Saban. And I'm like, no, not at all. It's not that John, John Calipari could win four national titles. It's because this is all driven by football. Everything is football, not basketball. And there's a chance that when all these conferences merge, like North Carolina is going to go the, the SEC or the Big Ten. But Duke might be left out because Duke is just doesn't really have a draw in North Carolina. They're a national school for basketball. No one watches Duke football. Kansas and Baylor, two of the best basketball teams in the country, year in and year out. Kansas won the national championship. Duke, Baylor, one of the year before, might be left out of these big conferences because of their football programs. This is all football-driven. John Calipari could win five national titles. It's not that he's Nick Saban. It's not that he's Mark Stoops who's coaching football. And I think that's what the, you know. Kentucky does not want to be thrown out of the SEC saying they're a basketball school. They want to be known as a football school. And that was, I think that's what you have people have to understand about these TV deals. When, you, when you, people came up to me and they're like, oh, the Big Ten and this, and, and why, like, why is Rutgers in the Big Ten and why is Maryland? It's all because of the markets these teams are in. It's all because of football. And basketball has nothing literally to do with anything about these TV deals and what these big conferences are being formed in. Ira, so we are a little over a week away from our first college football action. So excited for it to be back. What are we looking forward to? Some crazy early games. I mean, Penn State plays a big Ten. Usually we're, we're opening against like Miami, Ohio or whatever. Or, or it's, they're, Penn State's at Purdue. Uh, this is Thursday, September 1st. And West Virginia is playing Pitt, the backyard brawl, which usually was like the last game of the season. Now is the first on September 1st. Saturday, September 3rd, humongous game. Oregon and Georgia in Atlanta. And then how about Utah? Number, let's get this. Utah's playing at Florida. Utah's the favorite in this game. The number seven Utah at the Gators. And then the big game on Saturday is Notre Dame at Ohio State. 
Ohio State's a 13, 14-point favorite. So it's, if people feel that Notre Dame is highly overseeded or rated or whatever you want to think of it. And then on Sunday, Florida State's at, FSU, at LSU. And, and Monday, Clemson's at Georgia Tech. So uh, for the first week of action, and I always like this first week because the NFL starts the next week. So it's great to get some football in that weekend when there's no I, – I think they should play more Sunday games because I think this is their one Sunday they have for the next – 16 or 18 weeks or whatever that you don't have competition with the NFL. But, uh, no, I'm excited for college football to get that little start. That They call it week zero games. So. Yeah, I don't like the term week zero, but I like everything else about it. Just about 10 minutes or so till we get to uh, Kyle Petty here on Ira on Sports. Let's talk a little baseball, Ira. And you've been saying it for weeks. It, we, we can kind of eliminate half the league as far as the playoff goes, and it looks like we kind of know who it's shaping up to be. Yeah, in the American League, Houston, they lost 2-3 to Atlanta, but they're the best team in the American League. With the Yankees completely collapsing, I mean, Houston might have a cakewalk for the, for the championship. I mean, Cleveland, Minnesota, and White Sox in their division. Uh, the wild cards are Tampa, Toronto, Seattle, Baltimore. Uh, two, three of those four teams are going to get in. But look, the Red Sox, Rangers, Angels, Royals, Tigers, A's are out of it. I, I, when you look at Houston and how well they're playing – I just you can't see Cleveland, Minnesota, Chicago. I, who's gonna? Only the Yankees would match up to them, and the Yankees are playing terrible. So I really think like that is in terms of. Uh, I, I just think Houston is right now. Houston looks fantastic, and they're primed to make a run with with. Now this is a chance for them to win without any controversy, without any uh, the drums banging, signs feeling, whatever you want to say. Uh, this is uh, a, a great comeback for Houston because people thought when they got in trouble with all this, they lost their manager, the general manager, they wouldn't have a chance. Now they're back, and they're going to be the favorite to make it. Uh, especially, you know, everyone thought the the Yankees might not get out of the first the second round of the games. I mean, they're not going to blow an eight-game lead, but I, this, they're just absolutely playing terrible. And uh, they're, everything is coming home to roost in terms of their pitching. And people are blaming Cashman. He was just booed yesterday. Uh, Yankee Stadium, they had Paul O'Neill Day. We had Jack Curry on our show, uh, talked about his book about with Paul O'Neill that he wrote with him. And then yesterday was Paul O'Neill Day. And when they introduced Cashman, the boos were all over the place. And uh, so we'll see what happens with that. And then the National League, just to jump to the National League real fast, uh, Dodgers, 84 and 36. They're going to win. They're on a pace to win 113 games. They're like 100 million games ahead of the Padres. Uh, but the, it's really like the Mets and the Braves are hot too. So it's the National League is where it's exciting because you really have to say, you know, with well, the wild card, the Braves are way ahead. They might, you know, pass, you know, catch the, the Mets. One of those teams will be the leader of the wild card. But the Padres, Sills, and Brewers are all battling for that final three, you know, three teams for two spots. And Atlanta has a fairly easy schedule. They play Pittsburgh coming up. And the Mets are playing the Yankees, and, and Atlanta's playing Pittsburgh, who doesn't really care about playing uh, baseball right now. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think the National League, that is, I mean, the Dodgers are, they got May back, their pitcher who was injured, uh, Tommy John surgery, came back, uh, looked great his first start. Uh, Kershaw's probably going to come back. Diller's not. But, boy, I mean, just the Dodgers keep winning. And they play – it's a, we have a weird schedule. They play their final six games against Colorado. Six games series is terrible. And they play before that five games against Arizona at home. So I'm telling you, the Dodgers could, could win the 150, you know, some enormous amount of games, 114 or 15 uh, games this year. Just like remember last year, they won, you know, 100, what, 108, 109 games last year. So a lot of people don't talk about the Little League World Series, but I happen to love it. I get tuned into it every year. And it turns out one of, uh, you know, a little league from very close to where I grew up, Massapequa, New York, um, was in this. But they, they lost to Holidaysburg, and they're going to be moving on. I only put this as we talked about because I, my hometown, Altina, is 
right next to Hollysburg. It's like they're all, their towns sit next to each other. So I just, that was so funny. I knew you were from that area. And what's the chance that, that Altoona, <laughs> Pennsylvania, when you get to Massapeka? But, um, but uh, it's like I, I really don't watch it much. But I, I've been there at the Little League World Series for those games. And they showed they were playing like some of the – and there's this hill, and they all slide down the hill. And I guess one of the major league players slid down the hill. I was like, what are you doing sliding down the hill? Like I can't believe – People don't get hurt from that hill on the side of it. It's a great event. It's like one of those things you go once in your life. You're like, well, that's pretty cool to go to the Little League World Series at that and just sit in the hill. You don't really have to have a good seat or anything, but uh, uh, a great tradition and fun that's in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So, Ira, let's talk golf here because we're just, uh, you know, we're just one event away from the tournament championship. But what happened at the BMW? Uh, Patrick Canale beat uh, Stallings uh, by one stroke. Uh, Scotty Scheffler was 11 under. Uh, he was back in fourth place. It was one of the weird tournaments. Remember, Cameron Smith didn't enter it. Uh, Will Zalatoris withdrew. Uh, it was because you take standings for the BMW. And this is where it's not like, now we're getting to the Tour Championship next week. But it's like, I don't know. It wasn't that, I don't think there was that much juice in this, you know, in terms of if people were talking about this event. I watched it. I watched it only once on Sunday. But Kennelly, look, he's, he plays great at the end of the season. He won the, the tour championships last year, so he's just rounding into form. And the way they start the tour championships, people are going to get real confused by this. Kennelly that starts at 10 under, Scheffler, there's only 30 golfers who made it. Scheffler is at 10 under, uh, Scheffler is at, uh, at 10, uh, uh, 8 under, Kennelly is at 8 under, um, and then Zal, oh no, Scheffler, I'm sorry, let's say, Scheffler is at 10 under, Kennelly is at 8 under, Zalator is 7 under. They start with that by their seedings. It's so complicated. I'm sure everyone's confused. But as of last year, it looks like either Scheffler or Candelay, if Zalatoris isn't healthy, they, have such a, they start with such a big lead that one of those two will probably win this tournament. I mean, Rory's at minus four. So they already start six back. Like Rory is starting six back from Scheffler just to begin the tournament. Yeah, so I, that's I, how they... It, I was going to say, I hate the new format. It's just not fun to watch, you know, head starts and handicapping in events like this. But... PGA Tour is going to do what the PGA Tour is going to do. And what they're trying to do is combat live, it would seem like. So they're meeting up with some, you know, big-name players and trying to put together an idea to combat losing people to the live tour. Well, I mean, Tiger and Ricky Fowler met with all with, like, top 20 golfers in BMW at, in Delaware. They had the meeting, and then they come out of the meeting, and they go, we got this great idea. How about we have, like, 15 tournaments and pay $20 million each per tournament, and we have a limited field? Well, that sounds like, wait, that's what the Live Golf has. They have 14 tournaments, limited fields. <laughs> it's the same thing that Live has. It's like, oh, like they, if that's what they wanted. So we'll see what happens. But supposedly the big news is everyone knows uh, Cameron Smith is going to be leaving uh, the PGA Tour after the Tour Championships. But supposedly five other golfers are going to. So it'll be interesting to see. Of course, I'm obsessed with which golfers want to leave Live to go to. I mean, Live. To, they only Live. They leave the PJ Tour to go to Live. But uh, and then Live has events in September in Boston and Chicago. Then they're in Bangkok and then they're in Saudi Arabia and then Miami, October 27th to 30th. So they have. Five, they're going to have five big events, whereas the PJ Tour is going to have these smaller events that aren't as interesting. Uh, but. Uh, I just—it is funny that they met, had this big meeting, and they said, "Let's come up with the live format." And I don't like they're not going to do stroke play; they're not going to have three days. But look, I can't even explain how this torch. You know, people say, "Well, the libs—the uh, way they calculate their wins—it's too hard to understand." I'm like, I can't even understand the torch championship to explain that, let alone. So don't say that the live is so complicated. So let's move over to UFC. We had a, an outstanding fight in, in the title fight here, or in the main event, I should say, Kamara Usman versus Leon Edwards. And Ira, this is the fight where it's what everyone wants to see. 
all the entire fight for for four and three quarters of of a a round, Kamaru Usman is not only beating Leon Edwards handily, he's kind of showboating. He's looking like he, you know, he's he's got this cocky braggadocio about him. Leon Edwards stuck in there, fought, you know, fought as good as he could, getting his face pounded in for much of the fight. Catches him with a kick four minutes and four seconds into the final round and knocks him out. It was the fourth latest uh, finish, uh, fourth latest title finish in UFC history. Amazing, amazing resiliency from Leon Edwards. And this was just a fight that you have to go back and watch if you haven't seen. I haven't watched it yet. I was as troubling. I mean, so I'm glad you were texting me the entire fight. <laughs> I was in a place where I could not get it. I just could not get my well, the Wi-Fi was not working. And I, you know, I'm the biggest USC fan. It was a fight where I, I was going to try to run out and watch it. And you told me in the first round, oh, it was dominating, which I thought he was going to do. I, mean, I thought it was going to be, I thought it was just going to be a boring, dominating fight from Usman's perspective in terms of winning this. Usman is the number one, arguably the number one uh, pound for pound uh, fighter in the UFC. He's had five title fight, uh, title defenses. Kobe Cunningham, he beat twice. Jorge Masvidal, he beat twice. He won the title in 2019 over Woodley. He fought Edwards in 2015 and, of course, won everything since then, but so was Edwards. But Edwards was not viewed as a threat to this at all, and he fought for four and a, like three-quarters rounds like that, that he wasn't really much of a threat. Uh, just, but that's just what shows about UFC. Anything can happen, and you see them boxing too. It's uh, just an amazing upset, uh, and for Usman to lose this, uh, just uh, tremendous. I mean, people – and you watch, but I certainly saw the, the kick and the knockout out of nowhere – and the reactions from Joe Rogan and everyone, crazy. You know, like the reaction from you. You were like, you know, all caps <laughs> texting me like, you won't believe what happened. So that was pretty amazing. You can love or hate Joe Rogan. You have to enjoy him at, when these big uh, knockouts happen. But he really makes it fun. We've only got about a minute and a half here till we got to bring in Kyle Petty. Let's talk some tennis quick, Ira, because you're kind of amazed at something that just transpired. Well... First of all, Bornok Korik is 150 of the world. He just won Cincinnati, which is one of the top tournaments. It's equal to like Indian Wells, Miami. And he beat number two Lindau, uh, number 15 player in the world, number 17 FAA. He beat number nine Cameron Norrie and number four Titsipas. He only dropped one set. Absolutely amazing performance. Uh, Medvedev and Titsipas were in the semifinals. Great match. Medvedev lost. The people I have friends who hate fireworks and love fireworks. Medvedev lost because they're next to an amusement park. They started doing fireworks. Medvedev said, I can't serve with the fireworks. He got so distracted that he ended up losing the third set because of the fireworks. Um, and it was like a great tournament. You got to see Medvedev's Taylor Fritz match was exciting. Medvedev won that. Uh, Carlos Al- Alcaraz, uh, Cameron Nori beat him in the quarterfinals, which is exciting. And then uh, Kyrgyz play Taylor Fritz on Wednesday and just did not want to play and, and did one of those Kyrgyz a typical let's lose at the fastest I possibly can lose. He lost six three six two in like 40 minutes. Uh, but And then the women's side, Serena lost in the first round. Osaka, I mean, Osaka loses. Venus loses. Coco Golf retires and loses. And Serena loses. So it, it heads to the U.S. Open uh, where the Russians are here. It's still does not look like Djokovic's playing. He's not vaccinated, so they're not going to let him in. The doll is probably going to play, and Serena said this is going to be her last tournament, but she did not look good in Cincinnati. Do not expect her to have a, a long run here with the U.S. Open, which I'm going to go to a zillion of the matches. I'm excited with that. So before we get to uh, Kyle Petty, NASCAR legend, catch us up on NASCAR. Um, just the big thing about NASCAR, they fitted one race before the championships. Kyle Larson won that race, so now there's the Daytona race is left. 
15 drivers, they're winning, they're in. So they're, they're going for the final spot. If it's not, it's up to points. Ryan Blaney is third in the points. Truex is sixth in points. But it's pretty good. This is, I love this type of this final race because it's on Saturday night at Daytona. As I said, 15 drivers are winning because if they end, they're in the playoffs. And if you don't win, you're not in the playoffs. So that up with the 16 with the final 10 races. So it's going to be an exciting race to a Saturday night uh, for Daytona. Let's get to Kyle Petty, Iron Sports. We're so excited to have Kyle Petty, uh, former NASCAR driver, NASCAR owner on the show. Kyle, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. So your family was the is really the first family in NASCAR and was there when NASCAR started. And Lee Petty. So and then went from Richard, your father, you yourself, and then the rest of your family. But talk about the beginning. I loved your book how you spent a whole chapter on talking about where did this NASCAR start? Yeah, you know, my grandfather started in, in, in 49. My, my dad came along in 58. I came along in, in 79. And then Adam came along in 98. So we've always been here. Uh, and it seems like I always was, was a part of it in some way, even listening to my granddad's stories and stuff. And I, I tell people all the time, my granddad, uh, he raised tomatoes and pigs. And, and, and I like to politically correct say that he was in the beverage transportation business, which means he ran moonshine. So that, that's okay. Uh, and that's the way the sport started. That's the way the sport, we were starting talking the other day in that very first race at Charlotte, about 80 or 90% of the participants, whether they were owners, whether they were drivers, crew members, or fans, uh, were in the, in the moonshine business in some way, shape or form. That's just where the way it was in the South. But, uh, my granddad decided to become a full-time racer. Uh, and when he made that decision, that pretty much set the, set the trail and set the path for, for my dad's life, for my life, for Adam's life, and, and where we continue to go, right, right down the road with NASCAR. Yeah, you talked about how everyone knows Richard in terms of your father, in terms of being winning 200 races, the king of stock, stock racing, but your uncle was an engine builder. You had another, you know, your whole fit. This was a family business. Yeah, we're from the rural south, uh, and I, I tell people, I say it all the time. I grew up in a community uh, where everybody was was dairy farmers, tobacco farmers, chicken farmers. We just happened to raise race cars on our farm, but it was a family farm. It was a family farm. My 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 uncle ended up he tried to drive, but he ended up building building engines, uh, built engines for my grandfather when he won races, built engines for my dad, Pete Hamilton. So many different guys. Uh, their first cousin Dale Enman became the crew chief. Uh, all those guys are in the Hall of Fame. My dad, my granddad, my uncle, my cousins. Everybody's in the Hall of Fame when you look at this sport in those first few years. Um, you know, out of the first 10 years of the sport, my granddad won 50 races and three championships. He won 30% 30% of the championships. So we've always had a presence in this sport. Always had a presence in this sport. And then my dad took it to to another level. But it was a family uh, it's, it's a family business. It's just a Southern family business. It just happens to be racing. I liked how you talked about when you were a child and you drove around and you went to the races in the summer. It was like your summer vacation was just going to NASCAR races, but your mom would always take you to museums, drive you to education, all those things. So you really got to see all of America when you're a little kid going in these races. It must have been so much fun. It, listen, it was it was a blast. We didn't know we were learning. That that that's the funny part. You know, you know. I, I think it's always enjoyable to learn and, and to experience new things when you don't realize it's educational. Uh, you you know, what I mean, you, when you when you just think it's fun. We're going to the Henry Ford Museum. We're going to see all these cars, man. You know, they got limousines, they got trucks, they got huge engines. This is so cool. Uh, you go to an art museum and it's like, oh my gosh, look at all these paintings, man. I've never seen this many paintings on the wall, that kind of thing. But my mom was, was a stickler for that kind of stuff because we did have an opportunity to travel. So if you had that opportunity, take advantage of that opportunity. And it, and it was always amazing to me 
to be in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, whatever. Uh, and we would start talking about something in class. And I'm like, wow, I don't even have to study this. I've, I've been there. I know this one already. You know what I mean? That's, what, that's probably what got me through school, to be honest with you. But it was it was really amazing to think that you had been to some of these places uh, as you got older. When you were young, man, it was just an adventure. Every day was an adventure. You talk about in your book, in terms of having a father who is viewed as the greatest that they do, and you're like, you're in a small company. I mean, like, again, it's like, what is Michael Jordan's kids, LeBron's kids, Tiger's kids? I mean, it's just difficult, and you're going to the same sport that he was involved in. Now, NASCAR's a little different because you have a lot of these families, you have a lot of fathers and sons who do it, so it might have been a, a little a little easier, hard to say easier, but the fact is, the challenge of being Richard Petty's son and not just Cal Petty, uh, there's advantages and disadvantages. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, and, and we talked, I've talked about this with a lot of people, with, uh, with Michael Waltrip as a brother, uh, with Dale Earnhardt Jr. as a son, um, with so many guys, Davey and those guys. Um, the, the thing is, your father uh, and, and the name opens the door, but once you get in, you got to close the door so you get to stay in. And that, that's, the, that's the hard part. You know what I mean? Then, then that's back on you. No matter what your name is, that, that's back on you. So, um, but it, it and, and I tell people, it seems strange. Yes. Yeah. You, man, you were, it's a huge shadow. It's a huge shadow. You talk about Michael Jordan. You talk about LeBron, Tiger Woods. You talk about people like that. Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas. You talk about greats in a sport, Muhammad Ali. The, the shadow cast is just a tremendous shadow. Um, at the same time, at the same time, um, you're connected closer to it because of your last name. But when you walk in that garage area, you're not the only guy standing in that shadow. There's nobody else in there that's won seven championships and 200 races either. <laughs> so you're in good company with with all these other guys that are chasing that one guy. Uh, so it, it was, I think that took some of the pressure off. In a lot of ways, it takes some of the pressure off if you let it and if you understand it, uh, of growing up with, with a guy at that level, at that level, because there's very, very few people in any sport that attain that level. And the one thing that's a little different between auto racing than maybe other sports, now LeBron is trying to hang on so he can play with his son, but rarely do you see fathers actually play each other. You, you mentioned in the book, the funny story is that when Richard won his first race, or we thought he won the first race, Lee said, no, 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 I, I think I passed him. Like, I won the race, he didn't win that race. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that, that was my grandfather. You know, it was all about cash. If you read the story, you know the whole reason for protesting was so they'd make an extra 250 bucks that day. That's kind of the way, it, the, the way it played out. The company made more. And that's back to the family farm and it being a family business. It was as much about business and making money as it was about driving. But, you know, my dad raced against his, grand, his father, and then he got to race against me. I raced against my father. I ran a race against Adam. So it, it, it's funny in a sport, this is unlike... The stick and ball sports, like you say, is probably closer to, to, to golf, really, when you get into it, um, because you can have a 25 or 30 year career in this sport. Um, you know, you can you can be here a long time. And if you're here a long time, that stretches from one generation to, to the next. And that that is, that's pretty cool when you get two or three guys from from when we used to go to the racetrack and it was my granddad, my dad, myself. And Adam, there were four of us at the racetrack. Uh, and, and, and that was freakish almost. You, you know what I mean? Just four of us walking around was almost freakish. But uh, we were very blessed to be in to be able to do that. Well, you won your first uh, ARCA race. They, they won an ARCA race in Daytona and when you were young, and that sort of just propelled you to start, okay, now you're in, now you're really a driver. You've uh, talked about it a while. And I guess, did, you said Richard didn't even let you run go-karts when you were younger, so. 
Just uh, no, he, no, he said go karts are dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> that's what he said. Um, but but he let me have a motorcycle and he put me in a race car and never took me anywhere. Just took me to Daytona. Now, that's dangerous. That's the, I, I don't know what his definition of danger was, but um, yeah, he just never let us have go karts. But again, we lived in the country, so we we knew how to drive cars and we drove cars when we were seven or eight years old. Uh, there was a local local store that that my mom would send us up about a mile and a half down the highway, a mile and a half to get some bread and Coca Cola uh, for dinner or whatever we needed if she was running short on stuff because she didn't have time to go. But all the kids in the neighborhood drove. Everybody knew how to drive. Our closest neighbor was about a mile away, but everybody knew how to drive. So uh, I didn't think that was odd. Now looking back on it in this day and time, it's extremely odd. It's extremely odd to see a seven year old at the wheel of a car driving down the road like this. You know what I mean? To, to go get to go get groceries. But uh, at that time, it really and where I grew up, it, it really wasn't odd. So um, uh, you have so many stories in this book, Swerve and Die. And I think one of the funnest stories I read like three times was when you one you actually came, I think it was at second place and you had uh, some advantages at the Dover racetrack. I just want to tell that quick story. It is. I just couldn't believe that story. It was hilarious. Yeah. Some advantages was we cheated. Um, we took all the weight out of the car. We ran light that day. And and the funny part was I, I did a, a show with Daryl Waltrip not long ago and, and uh, finally spilled the spilled the beans and told him that we were we were cheating that day. He thought my dad had gotten the car. He thought Richard Petty was driving. And he's like, Junior, you got to tell me Richard's in that car. Right. You know, and, and it was like crazy. But and if I had known how to drive, I'd have beat him and won the race. I just didn't know how to drive. Um, but it was, uh, you know, that's back when NASCAR was a little bit different game. And um, we, I, I can say it's cheating now. At the time, we just looked at bending the rules a little bit, you know what I mean? But that was a blatant break for us uh, because we couldn't get the weight back in the car. That's always a bad thing. It's okay to fudge, but you got to get it back to where it needs to be. And we couldn't get it back. And you just didn't think you were going to be up so high that people were going <laughs> to, no one was going to care. And then suddenly you no, ran. We thought we'd be about 14th or 15th. I don't know how we ran up there. It was, it was fascinating. It, listen, I was as surprised as the people sitting in the grandstands or as, as Daryl Altrup was. And then you had this transition where you suddenly took over Petty Enterprises to some extent. Um, it was that transition where your dad is retiring, you're in the race, and that so there's extra pressure. You have all these people who work there. Your your dad is stepping back from it. That was it must have been such a challenge in terms of I'm trying to learn to be a good driver. I have to run a whole operation, do all these things. Yeah, that's that's a hard place, you know. And, and I think we see it right now with uh, with Brad Keselowski, who is bought into Roush Racing. Uh, to drive a race car and run a business is extremely hard when you're racing against people that just focus on driving race cars. Uh, automatically, they're one one step on you. They've got one step towards the basket on you uh, because they've got one focus. Um, and it was tough. It was tough. But again, again, and it comes back to 1949. It comes back to it's a family business. And that's what you had to learn. You had to be able to run the business, drive the race cars uh, and make things happen. So I, I think it was it was the natural progression. It just came a little bit sooner than I wanted it to. It seems like you always like to do a lot of different things. I mean, you have a guitar right behind you on the set right here. If people were on the Zoom call, otherwise we're on the radio right now. But, you know, you just didn't play music. You were opening for concerts. You were, I mean, it was pretty exciting in terms of uh, Randy Travis, Oak Ridge Boys, uh, just while you were racing. That must have been so much fun to be involved in racing. And you even said the drivers you were racing against came to see you the night before. Yeah. And then... <laughs> That's the crazy part. Um, I could keep them out as late as I was, so they didn't get any sleep either. But the, but the best, you know, the, the fun part was I had an opportunity. Racing afforded me that opportunity. It gave me uh, a platform that I could go do something and try something different. 
Uh, and it was fun. It was fun. And then it almost became a job. And, and I don't want two jobs. Uh, I, I wanted to be a race car driver because I never considered that a job. So uh, I kind of cut back on that and, and went back to driving a race car. But the music stuff was fun. I've always, I've always, and I tell people, I, I want to be that that guy when I'm 102 years old and, and I'm sitting in the, in the assisted living home and everybody's sitting around talking and somebody says, anybody here ever drive a race car? Yeah, I did. Anybody here ever play music? Yeah, I did. Anybody ride a bull? Yeah, I did. Anybody jump out of a plane? Yeah, I did. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to have those experiences. Um, and, and listen, I'm not going to be the best musician. I'm not going to be the best bull rider. I'm not going to be the best of, of a lot of different things. Um, but at least I tried. Uh, and that gave me a story to write in this book, Swerve or Die. So that, that was good. Uh, and, and hindsight, I've just been preparing for this book for a long time. I liked how you described your driving style as someone who you appreciated the car. You saw everybody who worked, the engineers, and you're like, I don't want to get in the way of this great car that everybody worked in. I'm going to drive it. I'm a fast, I know how to drive fast. That's what I'm going to do. That's my style of driving, as opposed to other people who sort of like want to take over the car, like I know best, those type of things. Yeah, you know, I think the car is just an extension. Um, You know, you hear guys talk all the time playing golf or playing baseball, and um, they swing with their whole body. Um, they throw with their whole body, they shoot, you know, it's not just, they're not just pushing. And I, I think that's the way I looked at, at a, at a car, but I appreciated the craftsmanship that went into building the thing. I, I appreciated the hours that went into designing the thing. Um, because, and, and that was part of my, my upbringing. My dad made me work in each part of the shop to gain that appreciation and understand what a car was, uh, and understand, you know, when you go out and tear them up, this is what you've torn up. You've torn up a lot of hours of work for somebody and they've got to put it back together or you've got to get in there and put it back together. So um, I think that appreciation makes you a little bit different driver. We don't have that as much today uh, because the sport has just changed so much. You can't expect these guys to be in the shop working on these cars. They're out selling products, uh, just like I'm selling this book. They're out selling products on a daily basis. You, you know what I mean? That's their job. So um I think as, as you look at it, it's just a different time, but I enjoyed the time I was there. And then you spend a, a large portion of the book talking about your Adam Petty, your son, uh, t- talking about how he just had this love of racing and how, you know, you saw, you know, Richard, your father was just you know, enamored with him and just work with him and, and how he, how you, he grew up in the sport. You loved working with him. You didn't, you didn't push him to do it. I mean, you, you actually literally pushed him away and said, no, 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 don't do it. And then, you know, he kept coming back and wanting to do it. And, and just your appreciation with him in terms of the bond you had. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it's that, that we're all, we were all allowed to be different people. Um, you know, I think my granddad allowed my dad and my uncle to, to be, to go in whatever direction they wanted to. Um, my dad allowed myself and my three sisters. And uh, when Adam came along, you know, he and his siblings were allowed to go do what they wanted to. Uh, Adam wanted to race and then he did. Uh, and then he came back one day and he did. Uh, and then when he came back the second time, it's like, okay, let's go do this, you know, that kind of thing. But because then you knew there was commitment and you knew that's what he chose, not what you you stared him towards, what he chose. Um, so it, it is fun to see that in a kid. Uh, it's fun to see that in anybody, you know, that they love what they're doing. Um, and, and I think that was the deal when he came back, it wasn't, it wasn't racing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sport. It was a love. It was a passion. And, and I think you have to have that to compete. And he had that. And he won his first, just like you, he won his first ARCA race. <laughs> that was like just following in those footsteps. I mean, he definitely had the skill and, and the talent and everything and the passion. Yeah, that was a weird deal, man. When, when I go one, 
and 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 uh, seventy nine and do it. And he does it twenty almost twenty years later and does the same thing. It's like ooh, that's a little eerie right there. But uh, it was amazing, man, to watch him drive. You know, I, I think anybody sees that when you see your kids start doing things, you think, man, where'd they learn that from? How they <laughs> how they pick that up? Um, and and it, it's fascinating. It, it is really fascinating. But I, I think that's uh, my dad went in Daytona in seventy nine, and and Adam went in those that race. Uh, those two moments are the two proudest moments for me uh, as a son and as a father, uh, being a part of somebody else's team. And that, that was a great day for us. And then to honor Adam's memory, you started, I mean, you talk about the Cow Petty charity ride where you're riding. Yeah. Uh, well, I liked how you said you first started riding motorcycles across the country and you're staying at uh, sleeping on the side of the road. Now you're staying at five star hotels and stuff like that. But it's like such a great ride. It raises so much for charity. But then the Victory Junction, starting uh, Victory Junction, the uh, uh, camp for kids for chronically ill children and the stories you had from those. And I loved how it has a, a NASCAR theme, the whole camp. It must be so cool. And you were worried that kids were even going to come there. And now you're, you know, you, you can't have so you have them all the time yeah you know it was crazy we started the ride in 95 we went to children's hospitals and then when adam's accident happened in in, in 2000 uh we he and i had been to a, a camp boggy creek in florida we had been to a camp one of paul newman's serious fun camps and i had been fortunate and blessed to, to be able to run some sports car races and drive with paul so when adam's accident happened it was just let's build a camp so we built a camp and uh you know, it's since 2004, when we opened the gates, we've seen over 100,000 kids. Oh, my gosh. Uh, totally free of charge. And it's just, it is a fascinating place. Uh, and they have Adam's smile on their face. So I know he's still he's still with us in some way, shape, or form. So that's that's pretty cool, too. But the camp is just, you know, I, I look back, and, and I, I talk about it in the book. You look back, my grandfather raced, my father raced, I raced, Adam raced. And in the end, we won championships and we won races. But... It really just give us a platform for this time to build a camp to help other people. Um, and I, I think that that will be the biggest legacy probably of a part of our family is um, that, yeah, they took a lot out of racing, but they gave something back to society. And, and I think that is that it's, it's not that hard to do. I say that um, because we lost a son and raised a hand and said, hey, we're going to build a camp. And a lot of other people, Dale Jarrett, Bobby Labonte, uh, Tony Stewart, Jeff Gordon, all those guys, Dale Jr. Yeah, let's help. We'll help you, man. And then race fans did it. Uh, and it's still going strong. Still going strong all these years later. Uh, and it's going to be here a long time after we're all, all gone somewhere else. And there'll be kids that are still enjoying it, I pray. And not to say that other sports and athletes are not like fan friendly involved, but NASCAR's just reputation in terms of their involvement. First of all, you're pushing your your products. You're seeing, you're getting interviewed after a race and remembering ten different products you have to mention. But your interaction with the fans, going to the children's hospitals, all those things you do, it just lends itself to what the NASCAR drivers have been for, since it started. Yeah, you know, and, and that, you're exactly right. <clears throat> Our sport has always been upfront about it. Um, we're salesmen. You know, I'm, listen, I'm here selling Swerve or Die. That's why I'm on your radio show. That's why you had me today. We're selling. That's that's what we do. But but the thing is, the the, the thing is, it's a it's a circle, and and we've talked about it a million times. I drive a race car, but I need money to drive a race car, so I talk to a sponsor. Okay, the sponsor needs to sell his product, so he pays me money to sell his product. The people that buy his product are the fans. So I'm nice to the fans, so they buy the product, so they give me the money so I can drive the race car, and I'm nice to the fans, so they can sell the product. And it just is, is that circle. And, and that's the whole point. I don't work for the owner of the team. 
I work for the fans. I work for the fans because ultimately the fans generate the income from product sales that allow me to go drive a race car, whether that be Coca-Cola, whether that be M&Ms, uh, whether that be Pennzoil. It doesn't make any difference what the sponsor is. If they're not selling their product, they're not going to put their name on the side of your race car. So uh, I think we've always been fan friendly because of that. We always knew that the guy that you were shaking hands with, that the that the family you were taking a picture with, that the autographs you signed uh, came back to you tenfold in so many different ways. That's 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 tremendous. Now, you have a lot of opinions about NASCAR now. I mean, you know, people are saying it's uh, you know you have Formula One coming on, and you're you're on you're on TV everywhere. You're on every single network in terms of talking about different things. Where do you where do you see what do you think think NASCAR has to do to is it, you know, look, all sports are losing viewership. All sports are losing attendance. So it's not just NASCAR itself. But what's NASCAR have to do to sort of stay relevant, stay current, stay hot, those type of things? First, I think it has to be true to itself. Um, it, it, it has to, to do what it does uh, and do what it does best, uh, which is put on a show. Put on a show on Sunday afternoon uh, to put on a race. And, and the one thing that has never changed in motorsports, never never changed in motorsports um is the equipment changed um the people that do it change the fan base changes whether it's on radio or tv whether nobody shows up that that changes but the one thing we do we start at a white line and we run around and we end at the same <laughs> white line eventually that never changes now if it's good people will come and if it's not good people won't come it, it's like that with anything we're back to product sales if the book's not good, people aren't going to buy it. If Coca-Cola tastes bad, people aren't going to buy it. But if it's good, man, people buy it. I think the sport has come full circle, and it's back to where it's good again. Um, it doesn't have to be great. There has to be great moments, just like there's great moments in the NFL or the NBA or, or baseball or golf. There's great shots. But every tournament and every game is not the seventh game of the World Series that goes down to the ninth inning. It, we, you know... Fans expect events instead of games sometimes. Fans want something fantastic instead of a game. Some, some games are just games, man. Some games are just yeah. games. Um, and, and, and I think that's it. We've gotten so used to the highlight reel that that's all we want is highlights. So I think the sport right now has to be true to what it is. I think this new car makes the sport great again. I think it's brought it back to a, to a stage. I think now the sport is experimenting with taking the sport to people. And what I mean by that is we went to the LA Coliseum this year. Um, you know, the, the audience we had, uh, the Latino Hispanic audience, the, the blacks uh, that came out, it, such a diverse crowd. We've never had that diverse a crowd at a, at a stock car race, at a NASCAR race. If you can't come to us, we'll bring it to you. Next year, we're going to the streets of Chicago. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's a street race. We've never had a street race in NASCAR per se, not at this level, not at the cup level. So when you look at it, um, it is it's like, we'll bring the, we'll bring the race to you. We'll bring the race to Jersey, man. We'll bring the race to, to Miami. We'll take the race to LA where you want to, where you want to race. You want to race? We'll bring it. Um, and I think that's the way NASCAR is looking at. I think that expands the fan base, but at the same time, it emboldens the fan base that it has to say our sport is growing, our sport is relevant, our sport needs to be here. Uh, and I think all motorsports is doing it. You talked about Formula One. I, we can throw in drag racing. We can throw in IndyCar racing. We can throw in local dirt tracks. Man, there seems to be a resurgence and where the sport and the people that are paying attention to the sport 
we are never going to be. We're never going to be the NFL. We're never going to be uh, Major League Baseball. Um, those those are just ingrained in the souls of Americans. I, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Stock car racing is for a large percentage, but not everybody. But not everybody. Um, and you've got to understand that. We can't be all things to all people. But we have to be the best we can be to the people that believe in what we're doing. Uh, and I think that's what NASCAR has to embrace, and I think that's what they, they're they beginning to do more of. Yeah, the one good thing about NASCAR is that it is a summer-type sport, whereas baseball is their number one competition. Now, there's certainly the NBA and, and those things, but you're not going against, of course, your playoffs are in the fall against football, but, I mean, it would be nice if your season would end, like, in August, but but that's so, like, you know, you're on TV, there's baseball, and then there's NASCAR. It's a great opportunity to compete. During the pandemic, I went and saw Daytona. I went to Homestead. It was my first races I went to, and people were like, oh, how was it? I'm like, oh, my gosh, so you put your headset on, you're listening to the radio, you're in it. That was over in a second. It was such a fantastic experience exciting thing to be there and following it like that yeah you know and nascar did a great job of coming back during the pandemic uh being one of the sports that could come back and listen you you strap in that car you you are socially distanced six feet away from your competition <laughs> all the time man uh that's the way it was so that that was good we had a sport that you could come back so it gained some new fans there because it was the only sport on tv for a while it was the only sport that, that was going on but it is it is, and I, I, I tell people a lot, it's like, it's like hockey. Um, you appreciate it more in person. Right, yes, it's right. a great TV show. It is. It's great on TV. It's great to listen to it on the radio, the visuals, the way they, the way they describe things. But at the same time, man, there's nothing like the thunder of those engines hitting you in the chest. There's nothing like having that many people sitting in a grandstand, 70,000, 80,000 people around you at a sporting event. Um, so it, it's, it's a... It's visceral. It's very around. You know, you, you feel it. You feel that excitement. You feel that energy. So uh, if you've not been to one, at least try one. At least try one. Before you not mark it off your list, at least try one. I couldn't believe how loud it was. I mean, I had those head, I had the head, the headphones on or whatever they want to call them, earmuffs. But yeah. I just couldn't believe how loud. And you just, you did feel it. I mean, it was, it's just amazing to feel that. Yeah. It, it is, man. And and listen, and that'll change. You, you talk, you, you, you ask uh, earlier about you know that that I have opinions that'll change because th this world's going electric uh, and at some point in time there's an e formula an e series uh, for Formula One cars uh, that they already run GM companies like that have already said they're going to build complete fleets of cars by 2035 I think or 40 right along in there that are electric so you know that, that noise is going away uh, but the racing won't go away again I'm back to what hasn't changed is starting that white line and the ending of that white line. And when they did it with stock cars, stock cars, it was a quiet sport then. Then it went to loud race engines, and it'll just go back to quieter cars. Uh, but the sport will continue to change and evolve and be what it needs to be. Kyle, I know you're super busy. I really appreciate it. We're down here. We're broadcasting in West Palm Beach, which tons of race car fans around here, as you oh, know. Yeah. And uh, they, they love it. Sometimes I think they take I-95. They, they practice. When you see some accidents all down the road, it looks like a NASCAR race. But anyway, Swerve and Die, it's in all bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anything. This is a fun book. I don't care if you even don't like NASCAR or whatever. Read the book. It's fun. The stories you have are great, just full of great, interesting stories. Thank Thanks a lot, Kyle, for coming on. Thank you, man. Thank you for helping me sell this thing because it's it's a labor of love. I will, I will say that, and I really appreciate people reading it. So thank you.
Really fun interview there with uh, Kyle Petty here on Ira on Sports. Ira, just a minute or so left here. So you are in New York, and you're going to be uh, taking in something tomorrow that I'm pretty jealous about. Well, Yankees-Mets are tomorrow. Uh, right now, the Yankees are up 2 nothing. I see uh, that uh, Judge finally was able to hit Scherzer. He had a home run off him. So we're going to see DeGrom pitch tomorrow against the, against the Yankees and uh, see what happens in that game. But uh, definitely uh, after a lot of pressure here now, this is totally different. When the Yankees and Mets met it last month, it was, oh, the Yankees doesn't, series doesn't really matter, not important. They're up by a million games. Now this matters. Yankees need to get turned this around, or the season's just going to go away from them. No, absolutely, you are correct. And, uh, of course, Ira did that interview on Zoom as well, so you can catch it all across social media at Ira on Sports. We're out of time. Thanks so much to Kyle Petty for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.